Hello there and welcome to a special edition of Nowhere to Run. I'm going to be playing the audio from a video that I just completed. It's a documentary or maybe it's better called an expose on Jordan Maxwell. This is the product of a lot of research that I've done and Frank Lordy has helped with a lot of it as well. If you would uh, rather view the movie you can do so by going to one of my websites conspiracyclosed.com slash nowhere to run or you can go to nowhere to run automatic.com and in the show notes of this podcast you will see an embedded player from Google Video you can watch it there you can also go to Google Video or you can go to my YouTube channel it's broken up into different smaller parts than YouTube the YouTube channel is youtube.com slash nowhere to run 1984 also if you go to either one of my websites you can download it I'll provide a link just under the embedded player where you can download the movie in WMV format and you can add it to something that you have or add it to different players or do whatever you want to torrents and the rest of it so you can help me get it around I know a lot of people need this um, so if you know somebody that needs it help spread it around so I hope you enjoy it you can email me with questions or comments or anything like that at Chris C-H-R-I-S at conspiracyclose.com Chris at conspiracyclose.com Enjoy. What goes around comes around. You may be a wonderful person, you may be very sincere, you may have done wonderful things, you break the law, and what goes around comes around. There's no escaping divine retribution period because it's impersonal. It may take a couple of weeks for it to come back to you. It may take a month or two. But whatever it is you put out there will come back. Bet on it. You can run on for a long time. Run on for a long time. Run on. For a long time, sooner or later, gotta cut you down. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. Go tell that long tongue liar, go and tell that midnight rider, tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter, tell him that God's gonna cut him down. Tell him that God's gonna cut him down. You will see this ancient sun symbol. This is the Nordic sun symbol. The cross on the circle. This is why, incidentally, you drive by churches today. You know, you'll see many churches have the big cross and a circle in the middle. The circle in the middle is the sun. The sun that dies on the cross of the zodiac between north, east, south, and west. The idea that the sun rises in the constellation of the Southern Cross between December 22nd or December 24th, or really any time ever, is so easily refuted. All you need is a simple astronomy program to find out that it actually never rises or sets ever in the cross constellation. It never gets anywhere near the cross. In fact, if it ever did rise in the cross, it would be a zodiac sign. That's how they came up with it. To add insult to injury, the Southern Cross constellation is not even visible from that part of the world is best viewed from the southern hemisphere. But wait, Maxwell has some more insight for us. Incidentally, if you take north, east, west, and south, that spells news. On the one hand, he is right. If you take those letters in that order, it does spell news. But it is the most illogical order for those letters. Why not choose north, east, south, west, or north, west, south, east, or even north, south, east, west, but instead, north, east, west, south. Not to mention that this theory also presumes that the ancient and root words for north and east and south and west were all anticipating a English language to one day use an acronym for the word news. That is stupid. Christ comes from Christos. <clears throat> Christos in Greek means oil. That's why you have Pillsbury cooking oil called Crisco. Crisco is Christo. Christo is Christ. So Jesus Christ is Jesus the oil. 
I mean, that's what it means, Jesus' oil. The Greek word Christos comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is where we get the term Messiah. It means the anointed, not the oil. The difference is that anoint is a verb and oil is a noun. It would be like me saying the English word covered means with chocolate, because sometimes things that are covered are covered with chocolate. Maxwell seems to know this because he goes on to tell us the wrong definition of anointed as well. But it does seem to serve his purpose to make this definition now because he wants to paint the picture of Jesus being covered in sexual fluid. You know what the word anointed means in Hebrew? I don't want to get into that right now. <coughs> Basically, anointing comes from the word sex. In no way is this true. The word anoint, neither in Greek nor English nor Hebrew, comes from any root having anything to do with sex. Again, in Hebrew, the word for anoint is Mashiach, from which we get the term Messiah. It essentially is a verb meaning to apply, or to smear, anoint, or spread a liquid. Even in the most primitive roots of the word, there cannot be found any connotation to sex whatsoever. You'd be surprised how much sex is entwined in religion. The Bible says in Exodus that Yahweh appeared as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That's true. There's the holy mountain with the pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The pillar of cloud and fire appeared nine times in the Bible. Maxwell claims to be quite the scholar of the Bible, so I assume that he has read those nine times. Maxwell has never mentioned the other eight times the pillar of fire and cloud appear in the Bible because they don't support his theory. In most of those cases, the pillar of cloud and fire is leading the children of Israel to different destinations in the wilderness. It is also depicted as descending on the tabernacle and speaking in an audible voice to Aaron and others. For example, in Exodus 13:21, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. In Nehemiah 9, verse 12, Moreover, thou lettest them in the day by a cloudy pillar, and in the night by a pillar of fire, to give them light in the way wherein they should go. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 5, it says, And the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud, and stood in the door of the tab tabernacle, and called Aram and Miram, and they both came forth. In Exodus 14:24, it says the pillar of cloud was in Egypt at the crossing of the Red Sea. He must have been pretty hard up for evidence to support this theory, because for the next few minutes he shows us some drawings and keeps asking us, does that look like a volcano to you? Here we have Israel at Sinai dedicated itself to Yahweh, and what do you see? Does that look like a volcano to you? Here's another one. Jehovah led the sons of Israel to a mountain named Sinai in the desert. He gave them his law. Does that look like a volcano to you? Here it is again. Mount Sinai. Look like a volcano to you? Mount Sinai. Does that look like a volcano to you? There's Moses up in the volcano. The feast of the giving of the law. Does that look like a volcano to you? Huh? Does that look like a volcano to you? There's one Hebrew telling another one, that's a volcano, Airhead. See it? <laughs> the uh, ark, the box itself represented the female, uh, the female, the ability to give life. Jordan Maxwell is quite matter-of-factly telling us that the real meaning of the Jewish Ark of the Covenant is not what the Jewish people wrote about extensively, but instead what Helena Blavatsky said in her book, The Secret Doctrine. Some scholars suggest that the entire Bible is about what the Ark of the Covenant represents. But all parties do agree that, according to the Hebrews, it did not represent the female ability to give life. This version is only found in Freemasonry. It is also very suspicious why Maxwell continually tells us that true history is the mystery school history. And so the priest would drop blood in front of the ark, representing the menstrual cycle of the female. This is really funny if you think about it. Jordan Maxwell is secretly using Helena Blavatsky's version of Judaism as his source to discredit Judaism. To say that's a biased source would be an understatement. Madame Blavatsky's writings were said to influence Hitler and therefore the Nazi regime. 
So to have this anti-Jewish rhetoric being said to be true history is concerning, and it should be a red flag to the truth movement, in my opinion. Because it had again to do with sex. If you don't believe me, listen to Jordan Maxwell blame all the world's problems on Judaism. Judaism today is the most eclectic religion on the face of the earth. Virtually nothing of what it teaches is true. <clears throat> Virtually nothing of, what, of, its, um, of its supposedly background is true. And consequently, the world is filled with violence, bloodshed, or disorder. Good people are dying. There are children who are starving. Our world is in trouble. Solomon's temple. We're told about King Solomon's temple. Incidentally, there was no King Solomon. So don't look for King Solomon in history because there was no King Solomon. I didn't take Maxwell's advice on this one, and I did look, and I found the San Francisco Chronicle article from 2003 where this Harvard professor is quoted as saying, we don't need to rely any more on the Bible or Shoshank's inscriptions at Karnak to establish that Solomon and his kingdom really existed, because we now have the superb evidence of the radiocarbon dates. That's the word Sol-Om-On. S-O-L is the sun in Latin. In Latin, the word sun is S-O-L, Sol. And in the Hindu, the Hindu priest of the sun, they call the sun Om. Actually, the Hindus do not call the sun Om. And the symbol and word Om have no connotation to the sun directly that I can find whatsoever. Remember the priest of Om? They chant Om. And On is the city of the sun. The Greeks call it Heliopolis. It's called Heliopolis to this day. But the Egyptians, Heliosopolis. Heliopolis means the city of the sun. The city of the sun, Heliopolis in Greek, was originally called in the Egyptian On. Look Keep in mind, he wants us to go to the Egyptian on that last one. I think on the first one, he wants us to go to Latin. The second one is Hindu, but it doesn't really matter because he's lying there anyway. But the important part here is that the Hebrew people never even used the word Solomon. They used the word Shlomo. And the word Solomon comes from the Latin or Greek. So this could only work at a much later date. And I'm okay with that being something the mystery schools do because they do seem to want to merge Judaism with sun worship. But Maxwell never seems to suggest that. He's always suggesting that it is the true history and that Solomon never existed which is odd because it falls in line with the, what the mystery schools want us to believe and what they believe. Get up in any dictionary O-N that's why when you walk into a room you flip a switch on. Okay let's just see if you can wrap your head around this stupidity here. What he is suggesting is that the Egyptian word for on which has connotations to the sun is why the English came up with the word on before the electric light was even invented, people were getting on their horses or um, whatever. So to say that the word on was invented anticipating or electric light, or to say that when they were trying to decide what to call the thing you would do to flip a switch of the new electric light, the masons stepped in and said, we shall call it on. It's just ridiculously stupid. Because On was the city of the sun in Egypt. So the three words for the sun in the three esoteric languages of the world is Sol, Om, and On, Solomon. Look at the, the ground plan for Solomon's temple. Here's what it really is. You'll see the male phallic, and it's within the female. So the whole temple of Solomon, the holy, is, is the male phallic and the most holy is the head of the penis and it goes into the female which is called the temple of Solomon, the temple of life. And consequently Solomon's temple was merely a representation of the sex act. This is a little complicated, but Maxwell is telling you what Blavatsky believes and he's also telling you what Albert Pike believes and just about every Mason believes about the temple. They regard it as very, very symbolic and very important. The main problem is, is that the Hebrew people wrote more extensively about it 
and much more ancient and detailed writings about the temple and their descriptions and reasoning for symbolism is vastly different than the modern writings of Blavatsky and Albert Pike. But this doesn't stop Maxwell from telling you which one is real and which one isn't. It's actually a symbol of Hiram Abiff, who the Masons believe to be a master Mason, and they actually don't really believe it's he was real either. They see him as a symbol of Osiris and the Osiris cycle of death and resurrecting. It is this tradition that is played out in Skull and Bones of the laying in the coffin and being reborn. That's why George Bush can say that he is born again when people ask him if he's a Christian. It all goes back to the ancient mystery schools of Egypt, and the initiates, all initiates, would lay into the sarcophagus of the great pyramid of Giza to be reborn into the mystery school tradition. Oddly, Maxwell has done that. If you've never been in the Great Pyramid of Giza, I will tell you it's an extraordinary experience. I laid in the king's sarcophagus and was blessed in a ritual by a Chemite priest. Here we're told about the manna from heaven. I don't know if you ever remember. Moses was uh, leading the children of Israel to pick manna from heaven. They would find manna from heaven on the ground each morning, the scripture says. Here they are picking up the manna from heaven on the ground each morning. Here in Exodus <clears throat> 16, 14, it says, And when the dew that lay on the ground was gone up, behold, the face of the wilderness, there lay a small round thing. So they call it manna. Well, what is manna? The manna from heaven was a small round thing. And it says when the dew that was on the ground, of course, when the sun comes up, it evaporates. And behold, upon the face of the wilderness, there lay a small round thing. <clears throat> mana, meaning Hebrew, what is it? And it's seven characteristics from the old ancient world. Small, round, wafer-like, sweet, could be hard, can be melted, and it was obviously from heaven. Because when you ate the mana, you could talk to God. Did you catch that? He moves on from that last characteristic, which was from heaven, and just simply says, because you could talk to God. Because it helps with his shrooms or mana theory, but... The text in no way indicates or implies or suggests that manna had any purpose for talking to God or any other spiritual connotation whatsoever. It was strictly used for sustenance. Here, watch it again and watch how he makes the connections to mushrooms. Also take note of the other characteristics he mentions for manna. <clears throat> manna, meaning Hebrew, what is it? And it's seven characteristics from the old ancient world. Small, round, wafer-like, sweet could be hard, can be melted, and it was obviously from heaven. Because when you ate the mana, you could talk to God. Well, now we found out mana was a small round thing, mushrooms. There are many problems in the text itself with trying to make mana psychedelic mushrooms. For instance, neither the psilocybin mushroom nor the Amanita muscaria mushroom will grow in the desert. The text also says that the mana would melt in the desert heat. This is not a characteristic of either one of those types of mushrooms, especially in the desert. In addition, it said that if it was left out, it would begin to stink and then get worms in it. Again, this is not the characteristic of either one of those mushrooms when they would simply dry up. It also makes it quite clear that they used manna every day for food. This would not be possible with either one of those mushrooms in nutritional value. In addition, in Exodus chapter 16:31, it says the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Anybody that's ever eaten psychedelic mushrooms will tell you they taste like a lot of things, but like wafers made with honey is not one of them. And here are the priests of, of Israel. Here's the Hebrew priest of Israel wearing a mushroom on his head. The mushroom headdress. I've often wondered, see, because the mushrooms were hallucinogenic uh, a hallucinogenic drug <clears throat> and I've often wondered is that why they call the priest high priest I'm only addressing this one because I've actually received emails from people telling me that this is where the Hebrew term the high priest came from even Maxwell seems to know that this is an impossibility and is only using it as a bad joke 
because the term high priest, you must first realize, is an English slang term, the word high. In Hebrew, the word for high priest was gadol, which means great or large in number, intensity, loud, older, importance, that kind of thing. As far as their hats, kind of, sort of, maybe looking like mushrooms, I'm just not even going to address that. Here in the catacombs of Rome, under the Vatican, you will find uh, paintings in the old catacombs of Amonita Muscara being the sacred tree. Maxwell's wrong on quite a lot here. It's nowhere near the Vatican, it's nowhere near Rome, and it's not in a catacomb. It's actually in an abbey in Plain France. And um, I know what he's trying to say is trying to show any kind of art in ancient history and saying it's proof of Christianity starting from a mushroom cult. When showing an artist's representation from the 12th century about Adam and Eve, which is something, a very common motif for artists being commissioned back then anyway, and artists probably do a lot of shrooms, what does that prove? And even if you found it in the Vatican itself, if you found it underneath the Vatican, what would that prove? I mean, we've shown time and time again that all the Vatican is is a continuation of the Roman religion. They turned their many pantheon of gods into the saints, and they turned their top goddess into Mary. But the common enemy of Rome and the hybrid Christian-slash-pagan Catholic Church was always real Christians, people that really believed in the Bible and really believed in Jesus Christ. Those people were the enemy of both Rome and the Catholic Church. Of knowledge of good and evil. Well, the whole concept is if you take the, 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 the mushroom, it opens up your mind to all kinds of off-the-wall things. And of course you can talk to God. All of the Jewish reference books, all the Encyclopedia Judica, all of, uh, you go to the synagogue, uh, go up into uh, Mulholland Drive, up to the Jewish University, and spend three weeks there and look up Saturn. You'll find out that 98% of all Judaism is a worship of the planet Saturn. Better wake up and understand where this stuff comes from. Where this stuff comes from is quite simply Madame Helena Blavatsky where Jordan Maxwell gets his name from, Jordanus Maximus. Maxwell is not presenting any new information here. He is repeating almost verbatim what Blavatsky writes in her book, The Secret Doctrine. Again, this would not be notable if it were true. I've spent the last few days doing as Maxwell suggests in this clip and try to track down any record of what he is saying in history besides Madame Blavatsky. After much study, it appears the root of the idea comes from the Roman historian Tacitus. This is what Tacitus says. Keep in mind, Tacitus worshipped Saturn, and in other places in this writing, it was obvious that he had been given false information about what the Torah actually said. He says, We are told that the seventh day was set aside for rest, because this marked the end of their toils. In course of time, the seductions of idleness made them devote every seventh year to indolence as well. Others say that this is a mark of respect to Saturn, either because they obeyed the basic principles of their religion to IDI, who, we are told, were expelled in the company of Saturn and became the founders of the Jewish race, or because among the seven stars that rule mankind, the one that describes the highest orbit and exerts the greatest influence is Saturn. A further argument is that most of the heavenly bodies complete their path and revolutions in multiples of seven. Whatever their origins, these observances are sanctioned by their antiquity. The other practices of the Jews are sinister and revolting, and have entrenched themselves by their very wickedness, wretches of the most abandoned kind. It should be noted that in Tacitus's writing, it is very anti-Semitic. In addition, as a Roman, Tacitus worshipped Saturn, and while writing to the Roman emperor, it's very likely that he has, as he did in other places in the writing, forced Roman religion on the Jewish history. I encourage you to read Tacitus's account of the Jewish history, because this fact becomes quite obvious, and is noted copiously by the many scholars who have reviewed his work. It should be noted that Blavatsky uses this writing of Tacitus to build her theory that Judaism came from Saturn worship, in her book Isis Unveiled, Volume 2, which Jordan Maxwell says in an interview is his favorite book. And this is yet another example of him telling us that true history is Madame Blavatsky's history, despite the lack of any other supportive data. Lucius, all mean in Latin, light. This is why you have Luke Skywalker. Luke Skywalker is Lucius, 
walking across the sky and he's doing battle with the prince of darkness whose name in the Egyptian was Set, S-E-T, because they noticed it got dark at sunset. Like so many of Jordan Maxwell's word insights, this could only work in modern English. The ancient Egyptians' word for the sun setting sounded nothing like the word set, as in their god set, and they never called him the prince of darkness either. Maxwell forces the term onset because he needs it to prop up this theory. This is very deceptive, certainly not something you'd want from a teacher. Some have suggested that Maxwell's just telling us what the mystery school believes, not what he believes or what real history is. But he says quite the opposite, and in fact never in this three-hour presentation ever mentions that this is what the mystery schools believe. He says quite plainly, this is real history. Yahweh is not the name of God. Yahweh in Hebrew is an expressive term. It's expressing something. It's uh, describing something. It's not, a, it's not a formal name of God. Yahweh in Hebrew simply means, and the best way to explain what the word means, is to take a garden hose and twist hold the, the, the end of it, turn on the water, and you feel the pressure building up. When you release the hose, it's a release of pressure. It's a release of energy. In the Hebrew, in the ancient Hebrew, the release of dynamic energy was called Yahweh. And it was always associated with sex. It's the building up of the sexual urge and the releasing of sex in the sex act was referred to in the ancient Phoenician Canaanite system as being one with Yahweh. This is a series of huge lies from Jordan Maxwell. I encourage anyone to go try and research that in ancient Hebrew the release of dynamic energy was called Yahweh and that it was always associated with sex? There is a lot of debate on the meaning of Yahweh, but those debates come to no conclusion anything like Maxwell's. In ancient Hebrew, the word Yahweh, also referred to as the Tetragrammaton, can mean many things. Meanings like He that hath sent me, He who is always the same, He who is absolutely truly existent, he has, he is, he will be. Some suggest I am the one I am, or I am whatever I need to become. Maxwell's definition, although it comes directly from Blavatsky, stems from the idea that Yahweh could have come from the proper name of the Phoenician Canaanite god Yam. It was at this point that Madame Blavatsky writes in her book The Theosophical Glossary, the meaning that Jordan Maxwell will one day use to say what he just said. Although he adds quite a bit in his definition in order to fit with his previous theory that anoint means to anoint with sexual fluid in the hopes of trying to paint the picture of Jesus Christ being anointed with semen. Keep in mind what Blavatsky is saying here offers no sources or previous support of any kind not to mention that no matter which way you look at it this word yao is not ancient by any stretch of the imagination. Even Blavatsky says it was derived from Greek and could be considered Neoplatonist. That's well after the time of Christ. Maxwell is wrong on several levels here. I'd like to point out that Wikipedia makes a good point when it says, In its earlier form, this opinion rested chiefly on certain misinterpreted testimonies in Greek authors about a god, Lao, and the this was conclusively refuted by Baudison. Re recent adherents of this theory build more largely on the occurrence in various parts of the territory of proper names of persons and places. Okay, now I'd like to point out this is exactly what M Maxwell says at the beginning of the clip that Yahweh is not, and that is based on a proper name. He says it's a concept. Again, he's referring to the Kabbalah Gnostic, but this is much later and it's not even close to his actual definition. It's important to realize that the Canaanite god's name was Yam, not Yao. Again, I encourage you guys to go out there and try to find any record that the ancient Hebrew people's word for the release of dynamic sexual energy was Yahweh. Good luck. As you may have guessed by now, Jordan Maxwell is not this man's real name. And I don't have any kind of problem with that. Using a pseudonym is a perfectly reasonable and understandable practice. But there is something a little fishy with the name that Jordan Maxwell chose. Here's why. In Madame Helena Petrovna Blavatsky's book, Isis Unveiled, Volume 2, Theology, she tells us what her version of the Nazarene Trinity is. 
and she tells us that the second in the Trinity is Jordanus Maximus. It is said that Jordanus Maximus, the water of life, he is the one through whom we alone can be saved. Now on Jordan Maxwell's website there's a section where it just lists a bunch of words that Jordan Maxwell is encouraging people to just do their homework on. Apparently because he's just so good with words. And one of those words is Jordanus Maximus and it has some question marks to the side of it. And then it's the only word that has a little addendum to the right. That addendum says this term was brought to Jordan's attention in an email he received from a rabbi. We thought we'd just throw this one in. This clearly implies that Jordan is claiming not to have any knowledge of the term Jordanus Maximus, at least up until he could get emails from rabbis, and considering emails are pretty late and his career has been pretty long, this is saying that he had no idea up until pretty recently of this term Jordanus Maximus. Now again, this term comes from Madame Blavatsky's book, Isis Unveiled, Volume 2, Theology. So keep that in mind as we listen to this next... Thank you. Yes. Gentlemen, have you ever heard or read uh, Mrs. Blavatsky? She's... Uh, uh, Alina Petrovna Blavatsky? Right. Yes. Right. Yes, I have all of her works. You have? Yes. Well, that's why... Yes. I no, think it's... her 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 best work was Isis Unveiled, Part Two, which is uh, theology. Right. Science. And uh, that was an exceptional uh, work. I think that Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, the Russian mystic, was a very wise and perceptive lady, and she had some very profound uh, knowledge. Uh, obviously, and her academic uh, uh, achievements were, were extraordinary. And so, I have a very high respect for the work of Helena Blavatsky. So, are we really to believe that Jordan Maxwell? had no previous knowledge of the term Jordanus Maximus, the second in the trinity of Helena Blavatsky, in her book Isis Unveiled, Volume 2, Theology, which he clearly says is his favorite book. This man claiming to be a great wordsmith didn't know that until he got an email from a rabbi? Something doesn't add up. Listen to Maxwell here, and then listen to Frank Lordy as he describes a little bit about why we should be concerned about what Maxwell is saying. <clears throat> I believe that the church and religion in general in the Western world, which is to say Judaism and Christianity, have given to the world much good and has been beneficial, but like any and all technologies and thinking, it has also brought with it many things which have hurt the human family. And so I think that this is why the human family is being mutated. I think we're being brought into a new world that you are not going to recognize in the next 20 to 50 years. I think this is going to be necessary because the way we're going now, uh, our world is out of control. The violence and the hatred among peoples is going to have to be done away with. We're going to have to do something about the facts of life. And the facts of life is that the other people are on this earth and you didn't put them there. Other people are on this earth because the God who created life has allowed all of us to be here. And somewhere along the line, there's got to be order on this planet. And I believe that there are certain individuals are ordained to make sure that happens. So I don't have any problem with power. I have problems with people who misuse power. But those people who have the power to do something for the good of mankind, I am sure that they are working around the clock taking care of their business. Any seeker of truth instantly should pick up on the catchphrase, well, there will be order order is coming remember order out of chaos so what Maxwell is telling you is uh, in essence chaos is coming things are gonna get worse and worse and worse and then order will be restored this is what the new world order represents this is nothing new this is the same old same old this is someone telling you that hey we're not gonna stop the new world order we're going to embrace the new world order because we may be thrown into turmoil, 
for a little while, but eventually order will be restored. An end to war, blah, 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 world peace. Oh, yes, it's all coming. It's all coming. I believe that these are the days in which the Bible calls the days of the meeting out of justice. What goes around comes around. And it's a time in which the, the powers of the universe are going to enlighten mankind whether they're ready or not. <clears throat> and I'm, unfortunately, I don't think there are too many in, people in the world who are ready for the very near future that's coming. Again, I, <clears throat> I have always been interested in words, terms, symbols, emblems, because I think that's the way the spirit communicates with us, is with symbols. And as we all know, symbols are used by the Illuminati. Symbols are used by secret societies. Symbols may be used by some spirit, but you have to really ask yourself what kind of a spirit is only interested in speaking to those that can somehow magically and mystically interpret their symbols. This is paganism. This is possibly Satanism, Luciferianism. But is it truth? Does Jordan Maxwell have anything to back this up with? Personally, if I were to believe that there's a God, and I do, I find it extremely hard to believe that he would send cryptic messages that no one can really understand unless they are well-versed in the mystery schools when he very simply could just write the truth out for everyone to read wow there it is oh I understand now as opposed to symbols that only an elite few can understand because you too can become illuminated through knowledge secret knowledge hidden knowledge Knowledge that God sent down but refused to show anyone that isn't willing to study symbols. I believe it is an article of my faith that for whatever you might wish to call these entities, the Bible refers to them as sons of God. Uh, sons of God, incidentally, are not angels. You need to understand there's different words and the reason why they're different words in the Bible because they mean different things as a world the difference between an angel and the sons of God and the watchers these words are not there to fill out pages they're telling you something angels are one thing sons of God are able we're told to uh, materialize in human form and abort with women and get them pregnant it shows their plumbing worked and consequently if they're able to have offspring through women I can um, I cannot imagine a woman being talked into bed by some hideous creature from another world but I can believe she might be talked into bed by a very handsome good-looking man who is not human he just looks human and you better go back and do your homework. This guy walks through walls. Consequently, I believe, as an article of my faith, that there are individuals on the earth today who are, for a lack of a better term, divinely ordained in their position of power. And I don't know if that makes me happy or not, but I'm smart enough to accept it and realize that I guess for a lack of a better way of saying it, someone has to run the world. And if they are here, and they have come here from another place in another time, um, they have extraordinary wisdom, power, and knowledge. And um, consequently, I don't see them, if this be true, this is just an article of my belief, but if this be true, that there are entities here who are not completely human, but who are a combination of the divine and human, then um, I see no problem with this. I accept that there are powers over us. And um, I think that they uh, will reward you for your diligence and your intelligence. If you intend to be stupid, then let them. The implications here may not seem like much to those that are unschooled 
in the Old Testament, in Old Testament theology, and those that don't understand who the sons of God are. And these sons of God are who Jordan Maxwell is telling you are going to reward him for being smarter than everyone else. And anyone else that wants to get in on the mystery schools and learn forbidden knowledge, hidden knowledge, occult knowledge, however you want to term it, they will then be rewarded for learning the Illuminati system and language of symbols. Now I'm not going to get into an entire discussion on the sons of God in the Old Testament, but what I can tell you is this. If you look at Genesis 6, beginning in 6-4, you'll be introduced to the sons of God. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. These were fallen angels that came to the earth and had sex with human women, and their offspring were giants. And it's fine with me if you want to laugh at me for believing that such a crazy thing could happen. But at the same time, I want you to consider this. Jordan Maxwell believes not that these were demons that came to the earth. These were just different entities. They were non-human entities that came to the earth and had sex with human women and had very special hybrid offspring. And they rule the world today. And they're going to reward him for being smarter than everybody else. And Maxwell bases this knowledge on the Bible. But his interpretation of the Bible, not what the Bible says. Because it's very clear once you understand what this passage is all about. These watchers or fallen angels came to the earth. They were the sons of God. They mated with human women. They tried to get their bloodline intermixed into the human gene pool. In what was an attempt at heading God off at the pass. If they could destroy the gene pool and the purity of the human gene pool before Christ was born, then should Christ be born, he would be born of a demonic slash human hybrid offspring. When we read about Noah, we are told Noah was perfect in his generations. Noah wasn't just a nice guy that God saved. Noah's bloodline was pure. Yes, he was a good guy, but he had a pure bloodline. That's why God told him to replenish the earth after the flood. It was because God wanted a pure bloodline reinstated into the world. And a careful reading of Genesis 6 shows that these uh, fallen angels, these watchers, they didn't just do it once, they did it after the flood again. And that's why you had Joshua having to destroy an entire civilization of giants, every man, woman, child. Uh, most people read this and they're appalled by it. It was actually non-human hybrids that were destroyed. And they were destroyed not only because they ate human flesh, not only because they were demonic, but because they had an unpure, unholy bloodline that could corrupt humanity's bloodline so that it would interfere with the Savior, Jesus Christ, being born. That is what the Bible says. Whether or not you want to believe it, I don't care. It's not my fight. It's not my argument with you. But when you have Jordan Maxwell, who is reading the same text I am, and somehow decides these sons of God that he may or may not be happy with, that the fact that they have power here on earth, but they're here nonetheless, and he'll serve them to the best of his ability. Just in case you think Frank is off base here with saying that Maxwell is planning on serving these beings to the best of his ability, watch this clip of Jordan Maxwell detailing his experience with these aliens. And notice that he goes back and basically makes a deal with them and says he will do whatever they want him to do. They will channel through him. And this is later confirmed by a psychic when he told nobody about it, that they listened and agreed that they would use him and channel through him. They even told him they are Pleiadians and that he too is also Pleiadian and he is here to be their emissary. For those of you familiar with the work of people like Guy Malone, Dr. Michael Heiser, David Flynn, Jim Wilhelmson, Joe Jordan, Stan Deo, this experience will be very evident what is at play here and what's happening. Read Michael Heiser's book, The Facade, or check out on Google Video any of the Ancient of Days conference videos. It is crucial to understanding who and what these beings are, because it is my view they are the New World Order. That is why the New World Order is so hard to track down and pinpoint who's behind what. It's because who's really running the show are multidimensional entities. 
and after a lot of study, I feel they are not from the Pleiades. Okay, so we drive out maybe a mile, if that, and all of a sudden I got a very overwhelming sensation that we've done something wrong. And it was extremely powerful feeling I had that, that it was very, I, 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 felt, I have felt this feeling at other times and I was right. So I said, I don't know why, what we're doing here, but I'm getting out of here because there's something going on and I feel it and I don't like it. I want to get out of here. And I stopped the car and I backed it up and turned it around and we were only out of the car more than maybe a minute at the most. And all of a sudden, just north of us, uh, the cloud began to open up in a, like a little bit of an oval, began to kind of open up the size that the moon would appear in this nighttime sky. Two white glowing objects came in very slow. They were not flying as such. They appeared to be just electronically or magnetically floating. And as they floated overhead, five more came in behind them. And at that point, I totally went uh, ballistic. I was absolutely, and I don't mind admitting it, totally frightened because I have never seen this kind of awesome beauty that radiated fear. But if you are like a child, a small child taken to a zoo and brought up to the cage of a gorilla, the, the overwhelming fear that grips a child, that's the kind of fear I felt. They began to move over our heads and began to change places as if they were doing some sort of a little routine to show us what they could do, and they radiate, and, I'm, and that's something you need to remember. They radiated a fear off of them. You could feel it. You're in the presence of something awesome, fearful. And I grew up from about the age of seven or eight having other world experiences. All of my life I have been involved in other world experiences um, for whatever reason. And I have experienced many things as a teenager and as a child and uh, even in adult years that were just startling things. Nothing compared to this, nothing. So I got in the car and I cranked the engine and they got, they got in the car because they realized I was serious and so they rolled the windows down and leaned out the window backwards so that they could watch while I'm driving away and I tore out to the, the highway. When I did, Paul sitting in the back seat, Ivy in the front seat, leaning out the window backwards, they went totally ballistic to each other. They started screaming uncontrollably to each other yelling, screaming at the top of their voice at each other. And what was happening is all seven of these beautiful things came right down over the top of the car, zoom, right down over us. I didn't, I wasn't seeing, I just saw a couple of them moving around and they were moving quickly and I looked out and I could see them moving around and I thought, my God, we we're in trouble. Now it's not just that we saw them, they are, they know we're here and they're following us. They were telling me that what the seven of these um, disc-shaped things were doing, they would come together in a circle without touching each other, but all of this in a second. They would come together in a circle and blow out into a seven-pointed star, come together in a circle, blow out into a seven-pointed, back and forth, and they followed us out at 90 miles an hour. They were doing that, following us, following us out just that way, just that quick. That kind of technology, we don't have. The next morning, I got up late, and I went over to the restaurant. Paul and I had already gotten up and gone over to the restaurant, and they were having breakfast and talking to the townspeople. And they had a big group of people around the table, and they were talking about experience. So when I walked into the restaurant, I thought that what they were talking about is the experience the three of us had had the night before. But they were talking about what happened to them last night in the motel room. Paul said that um, he, about a half hour, 45 minutes, something like that, after he fell asleep, he woke up totally awake and something picked him up 
actually picked him up and set him up in bed involuntarily. And the moment he sat up, a light came on over his head like a little dim night light. And he looked up to see an alien's face with the, 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 the typical alien's face with the bubble eyes, but it was glowing and you could see through it. You could see the ceiling through it as if it were a hologram of some kind. And it was glowing looking at him and he said it slid across the ceiling, went across the ceiling, hit the wall and came down to where it was even with him sitting in bed. And at that moment in his head, he began to see the, the room going in circles. He could see the window behind him going around, the door going around. The room was moving in circles. Obviously, it was some sort of, a, of an optical thing that was happening. And he said, but the face stood still while the room began to rotate. But Ivy, in my room, was laying so that she could see the, the, uh, the door and she said she saw the glowing on the wall, but she couldn't tell what the light was because it wasn't very bright. And she said, but when she opened her eyes to see the, the, the glowing of the light in Paul's room, which was the face on the wall, a little red, tiny little red dot of light came through the, Paul's room and came in and hovered over her. A little red, tiny light, which incidentally is in uh, Steven Spielberg's uh, Close Encounters. Every time you saw the big the saucers go by, you saw this little light going around. Ivy said she saw this little light come in and hover right above her, and at that moment she was totally paralyzed. Couldn't move, couldn't cry out, couldn't do anything. All she could do is breathe and just. And she said she laid there totally paralyzed, looking at this light, and when the light went when the glowing went through the wall, that little red light went out and followed it. It was gone. Now, I slept through all of this. I didn't see any of it. I'm just telling you what they said. But I know them, and they, they're not given to, um, to making up stories, either one of them. And so um, I said to them at the time in the restaurant, I said, well, they didn't wake me. And um, Pat, the owner of the restaurant, she said, no, no, they know who you are. They just wanted to know who your companions were. When I got back to Los Angeles, about three months later, I was in San Diego working at a company down there as an editor for a magazine. And I decided, this was in the uh, late spring, I decided to rent a convertible and drive back up to Area 51 by myself, and no one knew this, and go back out to where I, we had had this experience by myself, which I did. And I drove out there in the afternoon when the sun was still, uh, it was dusk, but the sun was still up because I wasn't about to go out there by myself at night. And I parked the car in the convertible. I parked the car. I got sat on the back hood with my feet in the back seat. And I said to them, I said, look, and I know you're here, okay? And I want you to know that I don't mind doing whatever it is I'm supposed to do. If I've got a destiny in life or a mission or whatever it is, uh, I don't mind doing it. But if it has something to do with you, then I'm going to ask you for two favors. Do not abduct me because I don't want to go anywhere. And don't frighten me in my bedroom. I don't want to wake up and find something in my bedroom I can't handle, okay? So don't mess with me, and don't scare me to death, and I don't want to go anywhere. But if I'm supposed to do something, if there's a divine plan of some sort where I'm supposed to play, then open the doors, show me what I am to do, and leave me alone. And I thanked them, and I got back in the car and drove back, and um, that was it. About a month later, now we're at the beginning of summer, I get a phone call from Paul, my, my publisher who lives in Escondido, right down by San Diego. And he's, he's telling me about this young lady who was a past life regressionist. And he said, you've got to go see this girl. She's sensational. Um, being a, a very spiritually inclined past life regressionist type of person, she has you lay on the table and take your rings off and your watch. And she's setting up the candles and lighting candles and doing some sort of a little ritual thing. And I'm just laying there watching her. I mean, Paul says she's great. We'll find out. And uh, she's talking to someone, and I'm laying there watching her, and she's talking to someone. And I said, who are you talking to? And she said, oh, I'm talking to your friends who brought you here. And I said, oh, okay. 
brought me to your house? She said, no, 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 no. Your friends who brought you to the earth, you've come here from another place, and they have brought you here to do something. I said, I've often wondered about that. Where did I come from? I mean, really, what am I doing here? And she says, well, and I'm just telling you what she said. She said, um, they are Pleiadians, and they have brought you here to do something. And uh, you are ultimately going to be a... Um, emissary was the word, an emissary for them. They're going to channel through you. They're going to use you, and they will speak through you. Uh, and they have been preparing you for, for many, many years. I said, oh, okay, I don't know. And then she goes on lighting some more candles, and then she starts talking again, and then she's laughing. And I said, what are you laughing at? And she said, oh, they told me something funny about you. And I said, what? And she said, they said that about a month ago you drove up to see Joe and Pat up at Little Alien in a convertible you rented, and you sat on the back of the hood with your feet in the back seat, and you told them you didn't mind doing what you're supposed to do, but you didn't want to be abducted or frightened in your bedroom, and they thought that was funny. Now, at that moment, I became very disorientated. I said, whoa, nobody knew I did that. No one knew I did that. I didn't tell anyone. And she said, yeah, they, they knew. She said, they're telling me you went back out there because uh, you didn't want to go out there and, at night because they scared you the last time. But that um, you went out there and sat on the back of your car, and they thought that was funny. And I said, why would they see humor in a human being frightened? And she said, because if you knew who you really were, you know, that would sound kind of silly. And so I respected that. I am just telling you what she said. But to me, that was a very powerful emotional experience, talking to her. Because she told me things that no one could have known but myself. Recall, as I have brought out in your program before, that my mother's uncle worked at the Vatican Secretary of State's office in the... Uh, and in that capacity, he, he was privy to many things going on in the world of intrigue and international politics. And the things he used to talk about when I was a child about the occult or hidden uh, wisdom behind the world scene and the hidden implications of the symbols and emblems and uh, the religious philosophies and how these things are all enmeshed in politics. And uh, the mafia runs this town. I personally know that. Los Angeles is run by the mob. If you don't think so, they got their own license tags. The mafia has its own license tag that the police department does not touch. They see a mafia license tag, they do not touch it. I'm not going to get into that. But I can tell you that the mafia and the mob runs this country. And the Catholic Church is behind the mob, period. And I grew up in my hometown having two uncles who were federal judges. My great-grandfather was a senator from the state of Florida, a very powerful man, and he died in office because they couldn't get rid of him. Why? Because he was mobbed, and everybody knew it. My uncle Joe Valenzino used to come over every now and then with his big cigar and sit, and my father used to tell me, don't you ever, ever ask Uncle Joe what he does for a living. There was a system in operation. My other uncle was a Catholic priest. One thing I do remember my dad saying all the time is that uh, there's never been a political movement that wasn't a little religious. And there's never been a religious movement that wasn't a little political. Like my mother used to say, there's never been a political movement in the world that wasn't a little religious, and there's never been a religion that wasn't political. The system that we are under is a most manipulating, exploiting system that's ever been put together. But I'll tell you one thing. The Steven Spielbergs and the George Lucases and the Michael Eisners and all the guys that run the entertainment world all of them are many things but stupid is not one of them these guys are class a top-of-the-line intellectuals they know the name of the tune 
They know exactly how to manipulate your thinking. They have something called program music. You can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. Go tell that long tongue liar, go and tell that midnight rider, tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter, tell him that God's gonna cut him down. Tell them that God's gonna cut them down Well, my goodness gracious, let me tell you the news My head's been wet with the midnight dew I've been down on bended knee Talking to the man from Galilee He spoke to me with a voice so sweet I thought I heard the shuffle of angels sweet He called my name and my heart stood still when he said, John, go do my will Go tell that long-tongued liar Go and tell that midnight rider Tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter Tell him that God's gonna cut him down Tell him that God's gonna cut him down